0: these guys great cash homie. <laughs> hello hello and welcome to another episode of the straight cash podcast as always i'm your host chad graf thrilled to be joined once again by arif hassan my colleague uh, on the vikings beat at the athletic we are taping this just after the draft ended i think uh, we are both fried arif what is your mental state as the draft is now finally over
1: I was trying to figure out when I last slept, actually, and <laughs> I still haven't pinpointed the time. So that's where I'm at. It,
0: it was one of the f- first times that I've pulled like a true all nighter since college, I think. I, I don't, you pull more often than I do, but.
1: Yeah. Well, so the, so I was able to get some sleep after the first day, but it was about three hours. And then after that, I, I have not slept. <laughs> um, I suspect I've taken micro naps. I don't know. <laughs> Well, hopefully Um, we can make it through these 30
0: minutes without a micro nap.
1: Yeah, hopefully. We'll find out, (laughs) won't we? Uh,
0: Well, let's just jump right into it then since this will be a bit of a sleep-deprived podcast. Uh, I think all in all, a pretty strong draft for the Vikings. You and I have teamed up for our grades that is posted now uh, at The Athletic. If you'd like to read the story and you're not a subscriber, you can do so for 40% off with the promo code theathletic.com slash straight cash. Arif, when you look at how this worked out for the Vikings, what is your big picture takeaway from a draft in which they picked 15 players, the most since the NFL switched to a seven round draft?
1: Yeah, well, I think the Vikings isolated a couple of areas of need and they just hammered it home. And interestingly, one of those areas was not receiver. Uh, so they they looked at the roster. They saw that they were missing two starting cornerback positions, as well as probably some depth. They saw that they were missing every single safety, <laughs> uh, and they decided that that. Can no longer be the case. So they went in there. Uh, they've talked about improving the offensive line uh, since 2010. Uh, and so they they hammered that position. Uh, and then, of course, it's not like they ignored the other positions. They obviously got a high-value receiver. They ended up with another receiver later in the draft. Uh, they ended up with uh, some defensive linemen, um, especially at edge. So uh, it, it's very easy to say they did this, they did that, when they have 15 picks. But it's very clear that having those 15 picks didn't stop them from double or even triple dipping into areas of perceived need.
0: Right, which leads us to Thursday, which feels like two weeks ago at this point. But when you go all the way back to Thursday, outside of, say, somebody like Jerry Judy or one of those top four offensive tackles slipping to the Vikings, I think it went about as well as they could have asked. They get Justin Jefferson, who, you know, I've read a little bit more about him, watched him a little bit more since the draft. And I keep coming back to Adam Thielen as a comparison. And I don't mean that uh, as a bad thing in terms of a lot of people like, well, why would you get the same receiver then? Uh, if you could if give me two Adam Thielen's, yeah, I'll sign up for that. Um, what, what was your takeaway of pick 22, the options the Vikings had, and then ultimately deciding to go with LSU's Justin Jefferson?
1: Yeah, well, because I'm going to be doing kind of the, the film stuff on him, I think, later on when we have actually nothing at all to talk about, I, I did <laughs> Keep a deep that one dive. in the back and, pocket for now? Yeah, yeah, it gives me something to do. Um, I, I went into a, as much of the data as I could um, with, with Jefferson, and I actually, I was thinking, you know, it, it feels like, you know, he should compare to Thielen or he should compare to Diggs, and in terms of how he was used, those are two of the potential, I think, uh, you know, reasonable comparators. Um, analytically he actually also matches what Michael Thomas is currently doing in the NFL of course uh, you know putting up good college statistics is you know a requirement to, to being drafted that high in the first place so that's not one to one but they all have a very similar profile which is that the receivers that do very well in the slot they, they may or may not have the majority of their snaps in the slot. Um, you know Thielen does Jefferson does Thomas doesn't Diggs doesn't, but they all do very well in the slot uh, and they all do a really great job on intermediate, routes in particular, that's kind of where, where they uh, you know make their hay. And so I, I don't really hate that comparison, at least in terms of how he's going to be used. Um, I mean, a lot of the stuff that he does well also maps onto Thielen pretty well. I mean, he's a pretty good route runner. He doesn't have blazing speed but he finds a way to get open deep just because he does a really good job with those vertical stems um he he has a really you know great eye for the ball great ball tracking and then also the thing that i think attracts um the vikings to him the most might be that contested catch capability because even though he gets a lot of separation at times when he doesn't have that separation he still finds a way to win the ball and the only area and this is a huge difference but the only area where Uh, You know, they don't have an overlapping skill set, which is not to say that the areas where they do have an overlapping skill set are the same. But the only area where they don't is that uh, we're not very confident right at the moment that Justin Jefferson can live outside of the slot and get off of press coverage. Uh, and and free himself from physical cornerbacks because he was protected so much in the slot whereas Thielen is one of the best in the NFL at that he's like probably the best thing he he does is the the skill he has off the release and that's not something Jefferson has but I think other than that there's a lot of similarities and I agree that if you've got two Thelans that's that's a pretty good thing and and Diggs and Thielen were so similar as receivers anyway and that was a really great combo to have so I, I don't think that's a problem at all
0: right it will be interesting to watch in, in- training camp, Jefferson's first few reps and, and see how he does uh, in the cases where he is against press coverage. Then the first round continues on after they pick him and they're able to go back six picks, accumulate a couple more, which uh, ended up being a theme of the entire draft for the Vikings. And then they get Jeff Gladney and, and he was a cornerback at a TCU that I, I didn't really know what to make of him throughout this whole process. On the one hand, Uh, represents a lot of what Mike Zimmer likes. He's feisty. He's tough. Uh, He'll mix it up a little bit. He is a little bit smaller though. And I wondered if he would primarily be a nickel corner. Essentially you lose Mackenzie Alexander, boom, here's the guy that's going to replace him. And I didn't know if the Vikings would be willing to, if they were only looking at him in the slot uh, to use a first round pick. But Arif, what is your sense of, do you think he can play on the outside? It's sort of been a debate with him uh, for a while. He did it in college, but in the NFL, does he have the ability to play on the outside?
1: I think I think so. Um, I think that more than Mike Hughes, you, you'd want to put him on the inside if you've got the choice, um, just because, like you said, uh, his size and, and Hughes isn't an overly large corner either. Um, but I think he does a better job on the outside, using the sideline to his advantage. Whereas Gladney, you know, he's very physical, he's pretty strong, um, and, and he's very willing to do all the things that you want an outside corner to be able to do. But Hughes's intuition for how to use the outside versus how to play the inside um, is is a, is at a pretty high level, uh, and so I think between the two of them, if if you're adding a third corner on the field, whether that's you know the corner they added later in the draft or it's Holton Hill or whoever, um, and you have to decide who you want to put on the inside, I think for right now you'd want uh, Gladney on the inside, especially because I think he does a little bit better job against um, you know players in space, and then also I, I think that. Because of the speed differences, I think that uh, you know Hughes does a better job keeping uh, track of receivers that, that are burning past him uh, deep down the sideline. That doesn't happen nearly as often in the slot. And so in order to protect him from those speed concerns, uh, which again, not, not that big a deal. Um, I, I think it was a good pick. If he was a slow cornerback, I wouldn't have thought that. But just to prevent those kind of matchups from hurting you, uh, I, would, I, would, I would put him in the slot to protect him that way. Um the only issue of course is that um he's probably the best press uh, the best press coverage corner on the on the team right now and on the in the slot you don't get to press all that much so you are losing something there. Um but I do think that he is probably best suited to the nickel for right now and it sounds like the Vikings see him potentially as as nickel first and we'll see if he can play on the outside.
0: Yeah. So overall a good first day for the Vikings and then as they wake up on Friday and day 2 begins Uh, Rick Spielman knows that he wants to address the offensive line and and essentially has two options in doing so. One is Ezra Cleveland, a Boise State offensive tackle that the Vikings have liked throughout this whole process. They like his toughness, that he played through an injury last year, that when you look at him healthy the year before, his tape in their eyes is even better. Uh, They comp him to Brian O'Neill, which is high praise from the Vikings, who are very high uh, on Brian O'Neal. So that was one option they thought they would probably have to trade up to get him, which, you know, hey, they were okay with. They had plenty of ammunition in later rounds. Um, and then the other option, and and a very intriguing one that was very legitimate, and, and I think more legitimate than a lot of people realize, or at least realized before Saturday, was they were very much in on trading for Trent Williams, they talked to Washington and, and had a deal essentially lined up. The compensation to Washington was not what held up this trade, uh, at least from what we've been able to report. It was that they could not come to an, a contract extension with Trent Williams that the Vikings felt comfortable with, um, and of course, you know, Trent Williams and his side has since made it sound like he did not want to play in Minnesota and it, the whole thing became very convoluted. But when you look at what the options were, a reef essentially a mid round pick and a veteran uh, say Riley reef or Anthony Harris for Trent Williams, a 31 year old uh, seven time pro bowler, outstanding left tackle or staying put, which was a surprise to the Vikings and being able to get Ezra Cleveland. What were your thoughts on how it all you know, came together and, and what you would have done in their position?
1: Yeah, I think that the fact that they didn't expect Ezra Cleveland to be there is, is a really big part of this story because the Vikings obviously were somewhat – I shouldn't say very aggressively, but they were very much in um, on, uh, on on grabbing uh, Trent Williams. And so a big part of that I think is the calculation that you know Cleveland is the only kind of tackle worth – you know, kind of avoiding somebody like Trent Williams, who still has a couple of years of really high level play left in him, in all probability, I guess we don't know that for sure. Um, In terms of like the consensus of, of the way people have been evaluating the draft, really, there was only one Tackle besides Ezra Cleveland that was still available by pick 58 that that would have kind of matched up there and that was Josh Jones and and I have no idea what the Vikings thought of Josh Jones whether or not they thought he was only a guard whether or not they valued him at all Um, but it really seems like the Vikings were so high on Cleveland that they were potentially willing to even spend a first round pick on him and and that's clearly not the case with Jones so um, between those two options given you know the notion that they're correct in evaluating Cleveland. I think they did make the correct choice, but only because it kind of fell in their lap a little bit. I don't right. think that they expected this to happen. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, they, they, yeah, they they would have been, I think, not put to the screws in terms of the negotiation with, with Williams, but they got to avoid a, a nasty situation regarding contract leverage.
0: Yeah. So then day two continues and Another sort of interesting part where the Vikings are talking a trade and doesn't come to be. They were very high on Oklahoma's Neville Gallimore, a three technique who they thought was going to be somebody who could come right in and potentially even replace Shamar Stefan as a rookie. It was going to be an interesting competition to see how it unfolded. So the Vikings knew they were going to have to trade up to get Gallimore. And they start making some calls, and it turns out trades are harder to come by than they initially realized. Uh, finally, they're able to find a trade partner. I believe it was the Denver Broncos, uh, have a deal in place where they say, all right, when Galmore's is available, we'll make this trade. We're going to move up and get him. And then sure enough, the Dallas Cowboys took him, uh, with the pick right before the Vikings could trade up. So not able to get the defensive tackle that they wanted there, uh, instead go with cornerback Cameron Dantzler. Arif, what were your thoughts on how all of that shook out?
1: Yeah, I, I think the Vikings were were very, very close to correct in terms of the way that they approached that. Um, you're, they, I mean, they were only one pick away, you're right. And so uh, their estimation that, that Gallimore was about to go was obviously correct. Their estimation that they needed to be in about that area to prevent that from happening was also correct. And so uh, a, a little bit unlucky there, probably one of the only times in the draft that they actually got unlucky. Um, and they ended up with a cornerback. I'm not particularly uh optimistic about his prospects, I think that you know there's there's some there's a lot of questions uh about i, I want to get into do, these questions
0: i am fascinated to to hear from you about these questions. You are a resident data guy nobody takes apart the data like you uh, and Cameron Dantzler is is a fascinating uh part of this because he goes to the scouting combine and runs a 4.64 40 yard dash. Obviously, very slow. I, I believe it was either the slowest or second slowest among all of the eligible cornerbacks. And then earlier this month, sends his agent sends the Vikings uh, video where they claim he was running a, a sub four four. I think it ended up in their eyes being a, a four three, three eight. eight. Yeah. Uh, what what can you? I assume players don't often shave off more than point. Two seconds from there, forty time in less than two months. What what do you make of just this whole sort of weird situation with his forty? Um, and and I, I, don't, I don't even know what this weird saga of Cam Dantzler's forty yard dash.
1: So th- the weirdest, or not the weird. There's so many weird things. <laughs> one of the one of the kind of unusual nuggets about this is that it is, of course, very rare, but not unprecedented for uh, someone to shave more than 0.2 seconds off of their combine time hmm. at the pro day. And one of those players, one of the very few players that's ever done that is Anthony Barr, who hmm. ran a 4.66, which at at, at uh, 255 pounds is, is actually pretty impressive, but ran a 4.66 and then at the UCLA pro day, which was electronically timed by the way. It's one of the only pro days uh, that wow. year that, or anywhere that was electronically timed Runs a, a four four four, um, and so he shaves point two two seconds off. And the the problem, of course, is that if it's electronically timed, the scouts aren't going to use it. So it's very difficult to see kind of what that means, um, because the scouts will only use the timers that they have um, in order to have kind of a, a a baseline from which to to compare all the times to. Um, and so it it has happened, um, and a Vikings player has been a beneficiary of that. (laughs) Um, So it is kind of interesting. But uh, yeah, there's so much at play here and it kind of digs into all of the problems that come with the data gathering process for this kind of data. Like, for example, people think that, and I understand why, people think that the combine is fully electronically timed and it's not. Uh, The... Start of the combine is started by hand, uh, and so someone presses a button and that starts the electronic timer that stops with the laser. Um, there is a fully automatic timing mechanism at the combine. the The company that sets up all the timing for for running uh, has uh, an electronic start that starts when uh, the the player's hand gets off the pad, um, but no one uses it and it's not published. It's it's huh. been in trial for like seven, nine, or nine years. Um, <laughs> And no teams use the official time. Uh, and so every team uses a hand time. And what's even more bizarre is that the NFL also has a hand timer. Uh, and so the, they do have hand-timed combine times that are not distributed as part of, um, you know, the the data that gets released about the combine. But you can find a way to get it. Uh, and so I found the hand times. And uh, Dantzler's hand times... And his electronic times are some of the furthest apart times at this year's combine. Uh, And so that, like, I think raises some questions. And then there's some other questions about, you know, his agent said that, that he injured his hamstring or injured his right quad, uh, which is why he didn't participate in the rest of the drills, which agents will often say about players that underperform in their first drill, and Mm. they shut them down for the rest of the combine, even if there's no injury at all. Uh, And so you have to be careful about that. But what's interesting about that is that Dantzler ran the 40 twice. Uh, And (laughs) and he he ran a 4.64 the first time and a 4.65 the second time. Uh, and so if he injured it the first time, he right. probably should not be running a second time, and, and if he did, uh, open up the chance for re injury.
0: Awfully impressive to only lose 0.01 seconds while injured on the forty.
1: Yeah, exactly. And if he if he injured it the second time, then the first time right. is genuine, right? Like it, it, it makes no sense. But why would he run a four six five both, or functionally four six five both times? Um. If his hand time is is closer to the four five five or whatever it is, um, you know that's that's weird too. Like th- there's there's evidence that kind of pulls you in both directions mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what is true time is, and that even applies to the the pro day stuff because people have been breaking down some of these pro day videos frame by frame to see what the true time is, and then some of them have realized wait we're not doing that with combine times. This isn't a one-to-one right, comparison right. <laughs> I don't know um, but someone came up with a four six three uh-huh. time for uh, for Dantzler's pro day and it's there's I so I've written a piece on it it should be up by the time you listen to this uh, on kind of all of the curiosity surrounding uh, the combine and the way that that process works and specifically how it applies to Cameron Dantzler, who's Performance, I think, just delves into every single nook and cranny of how the recording process can go wrong or go wonky. Um, and so uh, there's there's more on this. There's something about um, how Dantzler, uh is probably testing um, at a weight that he can't play at, which is already very skinny. Uh, he, he weighed in at 188 um, at, at 6'2", that's, that's pretty skinny. Trey Waynes was a very light corner when he entered the NFL and that was at 186 at, at six feet flat. Uh, and so you add the two inches on the frame and, and you've got basically the same weight, uh, and you end up with a much skinnier player. He actually showed up, um, to, uh, uh, to, to college, uh, Mississippi State, uh, 165 pounds and they have been attempting to make him gain weight. The whole time. So there's like there's a whole thing about what is what is weight? Actually, it's he he did
0: in his press conference after that he's eating everything that he possibly can. And he still can't gain any weight that he's been trying to do it for years and years and just apparently has too high of a metabolism, which sounds like a great problem that
1: uh, I do not have. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah right. I wish, you know, I'd, I'd have that problem. You know, his nickname in high school, I think he mentioned was right. the needle because he's so skinny, but he hits so hard, uh, Great which nickname. I mean, that shows up yeah. on tape. Uh, he's both very skinny. Well, now you've got hard. me
0: rethinking uh, the <laughs> B grade that I gave the Vikings for that pick in our story today, but uh, that's a fun rabbit hole to go down. Make sure to read uh, a reef story on The Athletic. Just Serge reef Hassan, that and all of his other um, NFL draft coverage will be there. That takes us into day three, Arif, and what are your sort of, we don't have to go through all 11 of the picks that the Vikings made, but what is your big picture look at what the Vikings accomplished on day three and perhaps a pick from day three that uh, makes you think they might be able to play above where they were drafted?
1: Yeah. Um, well the, the first takeaway is that, Hey, they weren't able to get Gallimore. So they kind of doubled down on defensive line investments. Uh, they grab, uh, I'm trying to remember, I want to say two defensive tackles and two edge players. Um, both edge players that they grabbed, uh, were kind of run first edge players, uh, in college that don't have a ton of upside in terms of pass rush. That that first um, one you're but, referencing,
0: I you think know, re- DJ Wanham, uh, Yeah, that was, that's an interesting one. Not to cut you off, because I just, you know, as you bring it up, I'm fascinated to hear what you think. He, by your consensus big board and a lot of places, was quite the reach for the Vikings there with their first pick in the fourth round. And yet, as Rick Spielman said in his end of draft press conference, this was a guy that Andre Patterson you know, he stopped short of saying stood on the table for, but said, this is a guy that Andre Patterson honed in on really wanted. And we have enough respect for Patterson right now after what he's done with Griffin and Hunter and and a host of others that, you know, we said, Hey, we're going to listen to this guy, but you know, with the caveat that Patterson is very high on him and that should be a big caveat. What do you know about DJ Wanham and, and what the consensus big board told us about him?
1: Yeah, so uh, the consensus of of experts, uh, sixty eight different big boards, uh, ranks him as the 180th player, one hundred and eighty eighth player in the draft. So picking him at, at pick one seventeen. Uh, is not remarkable value. It's not like catastrophic or anything like that. I mean, I criticize the pick. Some people push back, and then I I, I push back on the pushback, <laughs> and it looks like I, I dislike the pick a lot more than I actually do. Um, it's I don't think it's a remarkable pick, but uh, at least by kind of the data I have, right? You know, I, I'm, I'm not Andre Patterson. Uh, would that I were, <laughs> right? Um, but uh, from, from what I know, it, it doesn't seem like a particularly – uh, remarkable pick. Not anybody. I don't think I have a single board that was as high as as 100 on him. And so there's not really anybody of, of of that group of people that you know value as highly as the Vikings did. And and then you get into kind of an interesting question: Do you trust one Andre Patterson or 68 people? And intuitively, you just kind of want to say Andre Patterson. But um, it is it is really hard. For, for 68 people to unanimously be uh, incorrect on this versus kind of one genius, right? Um, so that I think it's going to be kind of interesting how that bears out. Andre Patterson deserves tons of latitude. If I'm in, in the Vikings' shoes and Andre Patterson says, I want this guy uh, and I'm afraid you're not going to be able to get him later, so, so we need to do it now. Uh, and I also have like 14 other picks. I'm absolutely doing it, right? Because he deserves that kind of latitude and respect in the room um, or I guess on the teleconference. Um, and so I totally understand from their perspective. But from the perspective of somebody on the outside evaluating whether or not each individual move was was, was a good move or bad move, um, it, it doesn't look like it, it's a really great move. Um, you know, his pass rush win rate um, or his pressure rate uh, in college is about 8%, which is very low for any drafted player at any spot in the draft, um, but certainly um, around pick 100 uh, you know there there are players that that go you know twenty picks above that that had that had pressure rates around almost twice that around fifteen percent um, and so he's just not that much of a pass rusher uh, but then you take a look at you know someone like Daniil Hunter right like what about him you know what about I mean Everson didn't have a ton of sacks in college honestly um, you know he had he had enough but he he didn't have like a ton compared to you know uh, his peers and so. You know, what, what, what does that matter? Does that help? And uh, the difference is that Daniel Hunter is a super athlete, um, and and so is Everson Griffin. Like, you know, when people talk about Everson Griffin's athleticism, they point to the fact that he was a punt gunner for a while, which at two hundred seventy pounds, which is unbelievable. Um, but also, we should point out that the Vikings loved him so much they were like, "Why don't you just play linebacker? <laughs> like, you just you know, you don't have to lose that much weight. You can play linebacker two hundred sixty pounds." Um, that happened for like a whole offseason. season, uh, and then they were like, "You know, we've got enough good linebackers. You can play defensive end." Uh, and and he, they went back to that that season. So I mean, he's just this remarkable athlete. And Wanam is uh, like an average athlete, and at the most important position or the most important workout in terms of. Um, you know, edge defender and workouts correlate more uh, to, to performance at at the edge defender position than any other. Interesting. Um, at the at the three cone, uh, he ran a 7.25 seconds, which was, is just a very unremarkable score for an edge defender, especially one around 250 pounds. And so, in uh, that test, you're like uh, not only your your get off, um, which you have to be able to execute well, but your bend and flexibility and agility, all of which are really important to to, to pass rushing. So, um, not a particularly remarkable athlete in the workouts that matter. About an average athlete, otherwise. Uh, uh, and um, and so the upside there is really just in his frame. And his frame is the part where you can actually do make that comparison to Neil Hunter. Both are six five. Both have these incredibly long arms. Um, both were very raw pass rushers coming out. Um, it's just that that Hunter is such a remarkable athlete that when you give him a pass rush move, he can make something of it fairly immediately and decisively. And in fact, he's one of the few people that uses um, like a, this. There's this flying cross chop that's just <laughs> insane to me. I think it's like him and Demarcus Lawrence use it, but they use the momentum they get by jumping off. Like they typically tell you never to leave the ground because you're losing all your leverage. They use the momentum of leaving the ground on a jump in order to create additional downward pressure on a swipe. Uh, And and DeMarcus Florence has has advanced it so much that he's actually built a counter off of it. Um, And I think Daniel Hunter's trying to use it too. Uh, But it, it takes just an incredible athlete to do something like that. And and an average athlete like Juanem is not going to be able to do that. And so you think about all the extra stuff you have to do to be successful. I don't know. He's just like he's not technically proficient at the moment. Um, he's an average athlete. He uh, is. There's just not that much upside there aside from his frame. But then, you know, you kinda do want to trust Pat I mean he's not infallible, Jaleel Johnson didn't necessarily turn out, uh Runa Aruna hasn't turned out, Stephen Weatherly is I think underperformed uh, versus ath- his athleticism. He's overperformed versus his draft slot. So credit to-, to him there. But you know, in terms of his athletic profile hasn't you know filled out like what other athletes have um, you know, I love Stephen Weatherly uh, or not Stephen Weatherly, uh, him too, but like a Fadio Odenabo is a player. Um, and, and, you know, he looks pretty good, but you can't say that that's a success story quite yet. And so it's not as if the Vikings defensive line group is just littered with all these successes. They had to make four or five picks here, uh, this year because it's not. Um, so it's not as if he's infallible. Uh, this is what it would look like if, um, if, if, if a Vikings pick didn't necessarily pan out, it would be an average athlete with a great frame, a lot like Jalen Holmes, really long, five, plays defensive tackle instead of defensive end. Um, he was a below average athlete, but um, a, a lot of kind of the same things where it's like, well, Holmes is like fine, I guess, but the the upside is not there for you to, to, to take a remarkable gamble on.
0: I do want to ask you, maybe I won't say the best Vikings pick of the 15 and the worst, but... A pick that excites you and, and one that you know makes you scratch your head a little bit. And perhaps after that answer, I, I may know where you're going with the latter. Um, but I'll go first to give you a second to think about it, and, and I'll go quickly. Uh, James Lynch, the, the fourth round three technique that they got when they realized they were not going to get Gallimore. I, I really um, have liked him, have enjoyed learning a little bit more about him. Uh, His middle name is Husker and I'm a Nebraska fan. So perhaps there's some (laughs) bias there. We'll just put that on the table right now. Uh, But an All-American last year, 13 and a half sacks from three technique, I think is what the Vikings are looking for at three technique. um, And a lot, in a lot of ways is what Shamar Stefan is not at three technique, but a pick and, you know, I'll let you elaborate on this if you want that. I didn't fully understand was Troy Dye, the linebacker from Oregon in the fourth round. Um, seems to be pretty similar to Eric Wilson, a good coverage guy, perhaps not much of a run stopper, but a guy who, you know, almost moves like a safety a little bit. My only question is, you've already got Eric Wilson. Your linebackers have shown to be pretty durable in Kendrickson bar. Um, I would imagine that Troy Dye is going to be able to help on special teams pretty early, but it just felt like a little early to um, be going to that well where you're saying, all right, this is somebody who's going to be a good special teams player for us. Uh, you're a reef perhaps most exciting pick in your eyes and, and most questionable one.
1: I actually, I think I have to agree. I think it's James Lynch. I mean, I, I talked a lot about how much I like the, the, the Willikies pick, the other edge defender that they picked. And, and I do like him a lot. 11% pressure rate is very difficult to find uh, in the sixth and seventh round. Um, and, and he's a remarkably hard worker. And he's an even better run defender than Wanam is in, um, in arguably a more difficult conference to do it. Like I know the SEC has all of this um, you know hype about it and deservedly so. But uh, you know, the, the, the Big Ten is really good at run blocking. Um, so uh, it, it is kind of interesting, um, but I, I do like James Lynch a lot. Uh, both Sports Info Solutions and Pro Football Focus, which track all of these things independent of each other, uh, named James Lynch the, the James Lynch the pressure leader uh, in the FBS. And so uh, you know he's the Big Twelve uh, Defensive Player of the Year. Played uh, all over the line, primarily on the edge in uh in at, at baylor but uh features potentially as a as a three technique for the vikings uh not that athletic versus edge defenders, really athletic versus interior defenders, which is how it often goes. Fits the mold of, of the Vikings trying to take all of these edge players, and moving them inside. The most successful example of this is Kevin Williams. The most recent example of this is Jalen Holmes. Um, but you know, it's something that they've been doing for, for a while, going back to like Christian Kennedy and, and so on. So uh, it, it's something that they like to do and it sometimes can be really, really successful. Uh, and, and I think Lynch uh, just has... Uh, the athletic ability, the technical capability, um, the positional fit there. Uh, I think everything kind of aligns for that to be a really smart pick. Now, when he actually did line up on the interior for Baylor, he actually didn't perform all that well at all. Um, that was about a hundred snaps, so it's not a small sample size, but it's not a large one either. Um, but I imagine the ability to kind of focus on that kind of matchup, where where your hand fighting has to be a little bit faster and you have to focus in a different way, you know, that kind of development under, and say Andre Patterson, um, you know, he'll be able to flourish because I think all the other markers indicate that that's probably a really good pick. So I'm going to agree with you there. Um, the Troy die pick, I actually do understand. Um, they just they love these mid round linebackers that'll play special teams. Right. Uh, you know, Cameron Smith, Kentrell Brothers. I mean, they just do it again and again and again. So I'm not shocked by that. Um, he is a better run defender. Than, uh, than Eric Wilson, who, you know, that's a pretty enormous weakness of his. He's a better coverage player than Ben Gideon, where that's a pretty big weakness of his. He's not as good at the things they're good at, but uh, it is it is kind of interesting to have kind of a middle ground between the two of them. Um, but the the guy that, that kind of raises the most questions for me, um, it just felt like they kind of punted the— rest of the sixth and seventh rounds away honestly um, Nate Stanley I didn't right. like Brian Cole I kind of understand for special teams reasons Kyle Hinton I I, I liked because um, I had identified Kyle Hinton as somebody that you could that you could grab um, but all of these picks seem like they're superficially interesting I think the one I, I dislike the most is probably KJ Osborne um, who I mean, like, seven returners went right before the Vikings picked in the fifth round here. Uh, and so I, I totally understand. I mean, like, Darnell Mooney and John Hightower. And, I mean, there's like, so many returners just went. John Reed, um, Joe Reed, uh, both of them went. And, and so I understand why the Vikings felt like they, they needed to, to get a returner, especially one that can return punts. Some of these guys uh, have only returned kicks in college. Um, but, but Osborne is just, like, not a very talented receiver. Um, you know, He played at Buffalo, graduated, transferred from Buffalo to Miami in hopes to kind of uh, expand his receiving repertoire, didn't do it, uh, actually regressed in terms of yards, touchdowns, uh, and catches. Uh, and so uh, couldn't kind of perform outside of the system where Anthony Johnson was a primary receiver and Tyree Jackson was throwing the ball. He became a primary receiver and got worse, not a particularly great route runner. And so he's really only a returner only. And the Vikings ended up getting – another returner in the draft anyway that, that might end up being uh, a better receiver. So pretty—or um, pretty, pretty or not better receiver, but, like, just a better positional player, um, Brian Cole. So uh, pretty weird pick because he's a pretty good punt returner. He's, like, the fourth or fifth best in terms of yards per punt uh, in the FBS last year. Uh, and, and so you can't say that he's uh, anything but a high-level returner, but— You know, there's not a ton of of reps of him doing kick returns, so you still have to wonder if you're holding on to Amir Abdullah there, Uh, and uh, there's just not a much upside for him to be anything but a returner only on the roster, and you go from Marcus Sherrill's consuming a space meant for a cornerback, but actually just for a returner, to potentially this guy uh, consuming space meant for a receiver, but really just a returner, so I I didn't love that pick.
0: That's Arif Hassan. Hopefully, he has gotten some sleep by the time you listen to this podcast Uh, Thank you so much to Arif for coming on after a marathon couple of days. Thank you for listening. Make sure to check out everything at theathletic.com slash Minnesota. Um, And thank you so much for listening to the Straight Cash Podcast.